Welcome to another episode of iBuzz, the podcast by Animal Concepts. Thank you very much for tuning in. I'm your host, Sabrina Brando. And today, January 1st, 2022, we have a very special episode in memory of the late Dr. Hal Markowitz, whose work in animal behavior and creative work in environmental enrichment has and continues to improve the lives of animals everywhere. Thanks to our friend Darren Minier, I'm delighted to welcome Autumn Sorrells today, who is the Animal Care Director at Elon Musk's neurotech company Neuralink. And Autumn has had the great honor of working with Hal for the last 10 years of his life. And this podcast is a celebration of his life. Welcome, Autumn. Hi, Sabrina. Thank you so much for inviting me to be here to talk about one of my favorite humans. Thank you. Thank you for being here. I very much look forward to, you know, the stories and your connections and work experiences and and personal experiences with, like you say, one of your favorite humans. (laughs) So perhaps you can start with a short introduction to yourself and how you met Hal. Sure. Well, I grew up in the Midwest in St. Louis, Missouri, and, you know, out in the Midwest, if you like animals, you're probably gonna get introduced to working with them through a farm setting or maybe a dog show, but farming is the big business in the state of Missouri. So agriculture animals were my gateway to learning animal behavior and welfare. And, um, you know, I always had pets, you know, cats and dogs growing up, but when I wanted to work with animals professionally and go to college to do that, I was predominantly working with food producing animals in agribusiness. And um, this was kind of interesting because I'm an ever evolving vegetarian. (laughs) And I started that practice in the seventh grade. So I was never terribly interested in making animals more efficient muscle growers. Um, But that's understandably a significant portion of an animal science education in agriculture. Um, But what I was interested in was how animals were housed and handled in this industry. Um, It's, you know, how we treat other beings in general had become a real theme in my life that I was pondering as a young person, um, because I was growing up with a sister who uh, had autism spectrum disorder. Um, And just being kind of an observer to her experience and how people treated her compelled me to ask if those who seemingly have a small or a little or no voice even can have some sort of say in their life experience. So for my graduate work, when I went to Purdue University, um, the USDA had actually given me a scholarship to work in their livestock behavior research unit with Dr. Susan Eicher and Dr. Jeremy Marchant. Um, And this is where I was going to be introduced to ethology or the study of animal behavior, which usually kind of has a evolutionary adaptive trait emphasis. And I was also being introduced to animal welfare science for the first time. Um, And this is where you're really asked to attempt to come up with questions for animals 
to ask them about their environments to better understand what their experience is or what their preferences are. And so in that work, we were assessing the common practices within agricultural business on the well-being of the animal. And we were really utilizing their behavior to learn how they were feeling about those circumstances. So for instance, my work at Purdue looked at the resiliency of weaned piglets from mothers that were housed in gestation crates versus open group housing to a mild stressor. And what we did find was that piglets that were housed in the uh, groups, the, 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 the sows that were housed in groups had piglets that could get to weaning weight more quickly than the sows that were kept in gestation crates. And their piglets um, had a little tougher time um, being resilient to social stressors. So kind of some interesting work there. Um, and while I was in college, uh, in my undergraduate work, I was actually doing a lot of internships at different zoos across the country. Um, and just, you know, being a good little intern, I was doing a lot of reading on how exhibits were designed for animals. Um, and very rarely was behavior discussed until these papers were popping up from a researcher named Dr. Hal Markowitz. And I think one of the first papers I read about was his work with the servals from the Washington Park Zoo in Oregon. And this is where they demonstrated that they could really increase some species typical behaviors um, like chase and capture of prey by utilizing the clear tubing with a stuffed animal on a string that they were pulling back and forth through it. And once an attempt to pounce was made, there would be reinforcement delivered to the side of the animal. And this idea of behavioral enrichment was just extremely exciting to me. And I thought, that's what I'm going to do. Um, I have to go work for this person. Um, and um, initially, I thought maybe I would go and complete a PhD in his lab. And so I just reached out to him and I, I asked him if I could be a student. And he wrote me back and he let me know that he had actually stopped taking students due to an upcoming surgery that he was going to be having, which would leave him without a tongue or throat. So, um, yeah, that's kind of my introduction to how um, I did end up going out to that university um, and he and uh, his previous student, Katie Eckert, introduced me to the world of lab animal research. And we figured out ways to evaluate um, the, the well-being of animals in, in those spaces. And I actually really enjoyed this job. I actually found it to be a little more welcoming than maybe the food producing industry was at the time. And, and so I learned everything that I could about lab animal care. And I ended up becoming a manager of the husbandry behavior and enrichment of large animals. Um, and this was cool because then Hal and I could just focus on challenges we felt really passionately about, which was often making the environment responsive to the animal. Thank you so much. And it's really good to hear also your background and where you came from and how this then connects to what you wanted to do and why this was so influential to you and still is in your work today. You actually sent through some links of videos that will also be with this podcast so people can see some of the work that you have done you know, together or it's an extension of the work that you have done together. And I have never, unfortunately, met 
Dr. Hal Markowitz, but of course his books have been extremely and his publications have been extremely uh, influential and are still today. And, and unfortunately, still a lot of people don't know about, for example, his books on like the behavioral enrichment in the zoo. And of course, his more uh, recent book on enriching lives. So we'll have links, you know, to these books. And uh, we really encourage everyone to uh, keep uh, reading his work and, uh, and really imp implementing it because so much of this work is not yet mainstream uh, anywhere, not in zoos, but uh, also not in labs. And so this is also important because a lot of people that are listening and do know of his work might know mostly of his work in zoos. But you now also talk about his work in uh, research labs. So perhaps we can go back a little bit and, and you can tell us a little bit more about who he was and you know, what he was known for, but also some of the you know, places that he has worked and, and the species that he has studied. Sure, um, yeah. You know, Hal comes to us first and foremost as an engineer. And it's pretty amazing how his story starts out and where he ends up taking his career, which should really be just a testament to people that you can take yourself in whatever direction you set your sights on if you just stay curious and open to opportunities. Um, and, and I share this with you with Krista, Hal's wife's consent. Um, but Hal actually had a really rough start to life, um, and he was actually without parental guidance or protection for um, by the age of 14. So he really had to make his own way at an early age. And I think this is the reason that um, it, if you had asked him who were the people who influenced him and in his work, he would actually list a couple of grade school teachers as his greatest influencers. Um, you know, and perhaps, you know, that's some of the absence of a parental figure, but I think these teachers really supported him because he was a very intellectually curious person. He loved poetry. Um, you know, he was intelligent enough to get himself into college in, in Long Beach. And then Krista mentioned he actually went to an engineering college in Pennsylvania. And um, once he graduated, he became a full-time engineer for Douglas Aircraft Company. You know, that's an aerospace company that would later merge into McDonnell Douglas. And um, she shared with me that while he was at Douglas Aircraft working on one of the newer model planes, he was warning some of his colleagues that something wasn't right with one of the parts of the engine. Um, and he felt like it was gonna be really disastrous if they launched too early. Um, and she said that he felt kind of dismissed, you know, that he wasn't really heard. And they did put that plane into flight and something did happen. And unfortunately people's lives were lost. Um, and this experience really traumatized him. And he actually ended up leaving that company and the field of engineering altogether um, for the moment to go back to school and get a PhD in psychology. And when he was a student teacher in experimental psychology at Oregon State, he, was, uh, he met one of his students who later became his wife. And that is the wonderful, magical Krista, who has remained a good friend of mine and was kind enough to share some of his early life facts about how with me. And um, I'll tell you why Krista is magical. Um, as you can probably imagine, how would, of course, only choose a very talented human being to be his partner. Um, but she was really talented in areas that 
he as a scientist didn't always understand or maybe even appreciate uh, at the time. And it's because Krista was very deeply spiritual and very well connected to the energy of the planet. She had written children's books on what life is like after death. She could read your totem spirit animal. She could clear negative energy from houses, you know, and when Hal was alive, this was just not part of his vocabulary. Um, and he would often tease her about it. But regardless, Krista always remained so supportive of him and his work. And they ended up having two lovely children, Tim and Jenny. Um, Jenny is also an artist and she did all of the illustrations for Hal's books, which is really neat to see. Um, and, you know, I think what's so interesting is that it wasn't really until another student of his at Oregon State wanted to do an experiment with seals at the then called Washington Park Zoo in Portland that how actually began to work with large captive animals. And that's the early 1970s when his work basically starts getting published. Um, that's his, his real exposure to animals. And, you know, Hal agreed to be the principal investigator for that project. And this project would open up the vast amount of work that we all know and love him for today. Um, and how was speaking to the director of that zoo. And, and he asked how, you know, is there anyone you know in, in the field of science that would be a good fit for the director of education and research here at the Portland Zoo? And Hal said, yeah, me. <laughs> and so, um, you know, that one project led to many projects for the next five to six years. And I think what's interesting as well is that Hal actually didn't really maybe appreciate zoos prior to working at Portland Zoo. He actually kind of thought it was a little cruel to keep animals in captivity. Um, but once he saw the animals responding to the devices that they were engineering, he was just absolutely hooked on helping them. Um, and, you know, he was just always very appreciative of any organization that was really open to trying new things. And always wanted to be on the cutting edge of progress and technology. Um, I think uh, I definitely adopted this trait from him and that may be why I'm at Neuralink now, but um, despite that groundbreaking work that was happening at Washington Park, how was actually fired um, and all of the behavioral engineering he had built in was pulled out. Um, and, and this hardly discouraged or slowed him down. He just packed up his things, headed over to another area of progressive thought, San Francisco, and he took a professorship to teach biology at San Francisco State University and would also lead a bunch of research at the San Francisco Zoo. So you can imagine he was pretty frustrated with the amount of resistance he was encountering by then. And I know you've talked about that before on other podcasts here. Yes, absolutely. I think it's a, a wonderful moment also for us to kind of discuss, you know, different ways or different avenues of and philosophies, uh, how people think about environmental enrichment, of course, you know, the building versus the add-ons and also whether, you know, what should it look like, from what materials should it be made, in what ways should it function, you know, should it be something that is interactive between the animals and the public or should it be you know, the wild animals in the zoo are completely, you know, separate from that. So there's all these, you know, artificial and naturalistic zoo designs, which then, of course, also and philosophies that people have. We're not allowed to use the 
you know, colors red or we're not allowed to use plastics or, and so, you know, it's, it's uh, perhaps you can talk to us a little bit more about his thoughts around artificial versus naturalistic zoo design and of course, environmental enrichment. Yeah, you know, Hal's biggest critics were those who felt that what he was doing was unnatural. Um, but his rebuttal to all of that would be that a natural habit, obviously the most natural thing that would happen is for the animal to be in its natural habitat in the wild. And if that wasn't the option, everyone would choose that. Um, but to choose no behavioral opportunities in a captive space over engineered ones um, just was pretty unacceptable in his, his mindset, you know, and, and I think that he thought that some of that was a little bit of maybe a facade. I think he thought that there was actually more of a concern about human convenience and that the devices that he was creating did require cleaning. They did require reloading. They required attendance. Um, and he would get pretty frustrated when he would find a device unused because it had become too burdensome for the, the caretaker. Um, and, and, you know, they just didn't feel like they had time for it. Um, he was pretty frustrated by that. And um, because he could see that the devices were so effective at producing behavioral state changes in otherwise sedentary animals. You know, they didn't just provide for the psychological well and physical well-being of the animal, which should be enough, but they, they were also super engaging to visitors. Like visitors were really into seeing some of these behaviors and this activity from the animals, which allowed them to really appreciate the magnificence of the animal's nature. Um, and I know Jill Mellon points out uh, the, the person's name that wrote an article saying, you know, what are we arguing about? We can do both things. Both things can be true. We can be natural and engineer it. And I think that's right. And the, the better we get at technology, the, the better that we can provide those environments that can look more naturalistic, um, but uh, give the animal something to actually think about and uh, have some stimuli to work with. Yeah, no, absolutely. And I think ultimately everything is engineered, right? Because we are creating it uh, for the animals, you know, the environment, we're designing the environments, the back of house, the front of house, we design uh, how things are. And that's the other important part is when we are talking about what do we mean when we say behavioral engineering or we, when we say engineering, or is it also very much revolving around in what ways do we create environments that have all kinds of affordances for animals? And, you know, how do all those things fit together? And perhaps you can talk to us a little bit about, you know, what behavioral engineering is through, you know, his lenses and the way that he was working and, and uh, the devices, some of the devices, perhaps some examples of, uh, his, uh, of his work. Definitely. Um... Yeah, behavioral engineering is definitely returning power back to the animal, allowing them some agency, which is that notion that the animal, are, the animal has, is the agent to their own well-being, rather than just a passive responder to their environment. And um, behavioral engineering was that specific way that we could make the environment responsive to the animal, um, and at least in the 
laboratory, I, I suppose the nice thing there was that we didn't really have to think about the concerns of a passing by public, right? Um, we didn't have to make it, the environment look particularly natural. We could use, as long as the materials we were using were safe, um, we could pretty much make a, a fairly mechanical looking object as long as the animal found it functional and useful to itself. So some of the things that we were focusing on were um, some several, these, often it was a, a device that had a roller on it and attached to the roller would be um, kind of a rotating feed bin so that the animal would roll the, the roller would in whatever way that they uh, were best suited to roll it. And it would produce pellets either to the side or, or over top of it. So the most fun one I thought we created was the one for pigs because we don't have the option in many facilities to provide foraging materials so that pigs can do that really important behavior of rooting. Um, and this is something pigs really, really need to do with that beautiful, gorgeous snout. And so if they're not having access to foraging materials, and again, we don't build facilities to accommodate animals' behavior. Um, we build skinny little drains that get clogged up just by looking at them. <laughs> so um, in that case, you end up putting animals usually on raised flooring so that you can keep them out of the feces and you can keep them clean. Um, and that really reduces uh, some of the behaviors that they have access to. So having these kind of roller devices in there allowed the animal to use its snout to root up the roller and bring food down into its mouth, which was super cool. You know, I, I think what is nice is all of these different kinds of facility constraints that Hal would point out and, you know, remind us that we're emphasizing human and operational convenience in captive animal care, um, you know, pointing to like facility drains, not built to process straw loads. And this really influenced how I would later, when we would go and design our own facility for Neuralink, utilize as much behavior information as I possibly could to design that building. Um, and, and that's been uh, something I, I definitely give Hal credit for. Thanks, Autumn. Could you tell us a little bit more about, you know, the behavioral engineering and in the sense of why do you think it was so influential at the time? And also, you know, why is it still, we're, we're talking here, like you said, you know, 70s, and now we're, you know, 2022, you know, why is it still so hard, this, all these different approaches or catching on? Yeah, yeah, you know, it's so interesting. Um, there was definitely a, a movement at that time in the, in the mid 70s, just kind of a little bit of a wakening up of hey, we need to do probably better for animals in captivity. And, you know, interestingly enough, Peter Singer's book, Animal Liberation, had just been published in 1975. Um, so these topics of animal ethics um, were starting to pop up in different areas um, in, you know, in just in the prior decade, um, some of the 
concerns around animals in wealth in uh, medical research were coming to light. Uh, Life magazine and uh, had printed some pretty interesting articles on animals that were uh, picked up uh, from, I, I guess, from uh, not necessarily someone's backyard, but their their a pet dog had essentially ended up in research, um, and and so there was a lot of attention happening in the media on some of these things. Um, why we're still battling some of these things today is a, another interesting question. Uh, again, I guess we have maybe just a hard time uh, thinking about things outside of our convenience at times. So, um, you know, although we're heading, I think, in the right direction, and we're doing our best to celebrate those approximations. I know that there's a lot of us who'd probably like to see some bigger strides. And, you know, they're just, I think a lot of people feel like very much attached to bigger systems, um, which sort of sometimes feel a little bit harder to uh, push or move in the right and positive direction. So th that may be why, but, um, you know, the, the thing we learned from Hal is who cares? Why? Just keep going. Um, yeah. Just keep focusing on what it, we know is the right thing to do for animals and, and just for all of us in general who are caretakers and know that animals deserve the opportunity to, to exist as they are. Um, and even throwing in maybe that possibility of having the right to experience joy as well. And I really appreciate, you know, like we're going to talk more about different obstacles. You already talked about his surgery and that you also talked about, you know, getting fired and, and, and mm. hard situations, but really, you know, focusing on what is it that you can do and moving forward and making differences for animals or for people. But you know, that working with the animals, but really looking at, okay, so if I can't do this here, then where else could I help? Because of course we have animals in so many different systems, People, animals at home, animals in shelters, animals in research labs on farms in zoos and sanctuaries, and of course animals in the wild. And so, you know, that's, I think, very inspirational that even if we encounter, you know, all kinds of different challenges, in what way can we keep moving? and moving forward and making a difference. And I would love to hear, before we hear about his work at the, the Primate Center and, and more lab work, could you tell us a little bit more about his work in the zoos and perhaps also his books like Behavioral Enrichment in the Zoo and Enriching Animals' Lives? Yeah, sure. Yeah, the I think uh, Behavioral Enrichment in Zoos is just probably one of the more popular ones of his, I think it was, uh, published in the 80s, and um, it covered a lot of the work that happened at the Oregon Zoo. And I definitely admit I have a lot of FOMO over <laughs> that work at the zoo because it sounded like um, it was such interesting and groundbreaking work. Um, you know, they the work we described with the servals um, eventually led to work that they did with gibbons. Uh, where they uh, basically set up different kinds of uh, feeder devices across from each other in the exhibit to get animals 
to uh, locomote across the exhibit and um, be reinforced by these boxes. And, um, and people were just really interested in seeing how these animals were moving and active. Um, the, I think Jill Mellon talks about the work there that they did with a mandrel named Blue um, and how that mandrel um, was set up with a box that had uh, reaction time buttons where you know he, he had to hit within a, a certain time period to receive reinforcement and you could play against him as a visitor. So like really, really get, uh, just embracing that idea of getting people to engage with animals in such a close and, and connective manner. I think that this is truly Hal's uh, greatest gift. Uh, and he brought this to the animals, but he was truly magnif magnificent at this even just with people, like the synchronicity that Hal uh, was surrounded by uh, is, it's truly uh, one of the coolest things just to take observation of. And Kristen and I had a laugh at this the other day because we talked about, um, you know, there's the law of Bacon where there's six degrees of separation from Kevin Bacon, <laughs> but we believe there's actually four degrees of separation from Hal because Hal just knew everyone. He was able to connect in so many different ways. And, and going back to what you're saying, Sabrina, about like how, how do we stay positive and how do we keep moving things forward? Um, one of the things that I think we do is we need to connect to each other. We need to make sure that we have relationships with as many other animal caretakers and people in the field as possible and educate each other and inspire each other. Um, you know, uh, Hal's daughter, Jenny, told me kind of this cute little story about how she and her boyfriend just found um, a wounded bat just a few weeks ago. Um, and they called a bunch of different rescues in the area. And um, one woman finally answered them after quite some time. And she wasn't very close to them. Um, and so she was going to take some time to get there, but she really wanted to help this bat. And so she came all the way across the Bay Bridge and she met them at their house and she loaded the bat up. And on her way out, she said, now, wait a minute. Uh, what did you say your last name was? You know, and Jenny said, oh, it's Markowitz. And the woman said, I think your dad might've been a really good friend of my husband. And it turns out this woman is Patty Gold, who is wife of Ken Gold, who is uh, the managing director of the gorilla care and research at the Coco Gorilla Foundation, who obtained his master's at San Francisco State and worked with Hal on a bunch of projects at the San Francisco Zoo. So there are just so many stories like that. And a lot of them happen like that from this five to six year period at the Oregon Zoo that Hal was conducting a lot of these uh, projects around um, animals in, the, in that space. And I know I, I definitely don't have the right timeline or the exact details, but um, you know, Hal also met uh, UC Davis student, Terry Maple, who would eventually go on to direct Zoo Atlanta for 18 years. And um, he met him while they were at Oregon. And then later he would meet Brenda McGowan at UC Davis and they would collaborate with Hal on some field research. And that's really where his conservation efforts 
started, um, especially with uh, harbor seals um, and looking at differences of uh, just human impact on wildlife. And I think with Brenda, it was a lot of vocal development with captive harbor seal pup work. Um, and you know, when I met Hal, um, he was actually just getting back from a trip to uh, Belize where they had just done a bunch of student research projects in conservation there. Um, and they were telling me that Hal at some point had gotten this really nasty case of botfly larva buried in his head. <laughs> and they had to all be surgically removed, which sounds just terrible and awful. Um, and I said, my gosh, what were you guys studying out there? How, how are you looking at enrichment out in Belize? And uh, they said, oh no, we were studying a wild of true pallor monkeys and their, and their feces. <laughs> I said, I think I know how he got the, <laughs> that bot fly. <laughs> so, um, Wonderful yeah. stories. Yeah. <laughs> and also the importance, like you talked about this, the, all the interfaces between people mm -hmm. in different disciplines, but also looking at, you know, the wild for inspiration and also thinking about, okay, we don't want animals doing nothing all day. So, you know, how do we create environments that have opportunities for them where they can get reinforcements, not just by the behaviors that they do, but also as they do them, they can get a food pellet or they can get access to something else. And so we get animals moving. And of course, as you mentioned, the importance of connecting to visitors and the messages that we send. And of course, it's a lot more interesting to see active animals. So it's, it's all connected, really. And in, indeed, how do you get inspiration from everywhere, right? Um, and hopefully not right. by very often. But uh, right. yeah, yeah. It's, it's really important to keep you know, being connected and, and also in what ways can the information from the wild help us to make captive environments better? And in what ways can we help, you know, studying the impact of humans on wildlife? So, and there's always, yeah, it's just wonderful to hear about all these collaborations and these different avenues. So thank you so much for sharing them. And, and I know you already mentioned it didn't really have a very uh, happy, you know, a very good ending in the sense that, uh, unfortunately, you know, his work couldn't continue at the zoo, but he was not, you know, discouraged. He just kept going. So perhaps you can, you can talk about, you know, okay, it was like, right, where do we go now? And what are we doing? And yeah. uh, of course that sort of force uh, is, is really incredible too. Yeah, yeah. And, and just, again, go back to um, speaking about some of his publications and the books. The reason I bring all that up is because when I think about those books that he wrote, they were with so many people. There were so many people who were involved in these projects. I think there's something like uh, 46 students that he guided and over 300 publications that he ended up being a part of. Um, and it's because he was willing to um, just connect with people and let them go and, and explore these different ideas. It wasn't just, oh, I only study this one thing. He would say yes to, yeah, you want to go to Belize and, and analyze feces in the rainforest? Let's do it. You want to go, you know, like he really allowed himself to stay open to identifying opportunities for himself. Um, that could eventually help others. 
Um, and, you know, he, he finally um, did move over to San Francisco. Um, he got introduced to Joseph Spinelli, who would bring him into the world of animals and medical research. Um, and I think Hal was also surprised that people in this arena were just as open, if not maybe even a little more so than zoos, to providing um, some new behavioral opportunities for the animals. And, you know, they were willing to acknowledge that the space that they were working in was barren. And I, I really do attribute that honesty and openness to Joe Spinelli and um, later his, uh, Dr. Clifford Roberts, um, because they really allowed Hal to do what he did best. Um, and that facility that they worked at at UCSF became one of the more progressive research facilities during that time. And again, the, the laboratory setting doesn't have to educate the public, so it doesn't have to look natural. So that does give it a little bit um, of an advantage. Um, but, you know, there were some really fun and interesting things that we did. Um, animals have to be weighed. So we talk a lot about behavioral husbandry. So our marmosets, um, you know, you could put in load cell scales uh, into their own little enclosures and train the animals to come over and weigh themselves so that they never have to experience restraint and capturing. Marmosets are kind of little flighty guys. So reducing any potential injury to them is majorly improving their well-being. Um, same for squirrel monkeys. Uh, rather than um, remove them by hand to take them wherever they need to go, why not train them uh, to some nesting boxes that can be closed and that nesting box can be moved to wherever you need it to go, the scale. And, and so Hal spent a lot of time building uh, different types of caging that had nesting boxes uh, attached to them and could slide eat on and off quite easily uh, so that the animal could enter and the caretaker could easily remove it. I love uh, that. I think yeah. that's a great, you know, like um, I, I also very much, I've worked and still work with research facilities myself. So you and I, uh, to a certain degree, are in the same sphere where we're constantly trying to think, how can we make things better, right? We're refining our methods all the time. And, and that human-animal interface and our connection and make and creating the environments in ways that it makes it so much easier and more animal friendly, but also caretaker friendly to, to do the work that is necessary. And what I also hear you talk about very much is this, is this drive to make things better for animals that, that he had. And, and also what to me really comes through is this sort of humble attitude towards we can always do better, you know, whether we are open to the public, whether we are closed, what we kind of owe animals or what we, you know, should be doing for them to make it as good as it can be with the knowledge that we have the technology. And I, I, that's to me, is really, I, I think that's really, uh, I can really appreciate that because it is so important to always think about how can we make this better? How can we make this better? What is it that we can do here? So I really appreciate you, you know, sharing these stories on how we try to do that. Yeah, I think uh, some of his, the important influence from him is that balance of, listen, if we are going to make this uh, very kind of presumptuous move to 
keep animals in a captive state for whatever reason, whether it's for the better of everybody or not, it's our responsibility to make sure that they're cared for to the best of our ability, right? Um, it's, it's really important that uh, we put aside our convenience to, to make that happen. Um, and yeah, he, he was always uh, thinking of new ways to do that. And he was just not discouraged. I, I think that's the part that was always just really motivating for me to be around because we were told no all of the time, <laughs> all of the time, many, many times were we told no. Um, and it just, it was just like, yeah, okay, well, then we're going to modify this over here. Yeah, okay, you don't like that? Okay, we're going to, and it just, that inspiration of, we're just going to keep going. So you might as well let us do something, because we're not going to stop. <laughs> and yeah, I, and I, I love really these powerful. sorts of, yeah, so it's of, uh, it is in, in, indeed powerful. Uh, it's all these micro, right, the, these micro winds, micro winds everywhere. Yes, yes. And um, some years ago, somebody said to me oh you should read um go for no uh, it's and it's a book it's really about marketing and about you know sales uh, but you know we in animal care or welfare in our work we constantly have to sell things right we constantly have to kind of sell our yes. ideas and sell our you know yes. proposals and um and also and, the, and this book is a good one because it uh, really tries to build your resilience against the word no and uh, and I'd love, you know, and, and it also highlights some of the, you know, keeping track and, and going for micro wins, which you talk about right now. So, OK, so we can't do this. You're going to hear no a lot. Uh, and uh, and how do you stay positive and, and still continue to make a difference? I like that a lot. Thanks for sharing that one. Yeah, absolutely. I'll share I'll share one more project that we worked on. Um, and this was rhesus macaque project. You know, we definitely do not have the right size spaces for macaques in research in captivity. And, um, and so they have a tendency to put on a lot of weight and, um, and not really get their bodies moving too much. And so, um, you know, how, how do we exercise? We, we jump on a treadmill. Um, and so that this idea that, well, we could push a treadmill up uh, to a primate's cage and if they were interested in going in there and, and checking it out, maybe that could be interesting. So we experimented a little bit with this and how built, you know, kind of a Lexan box on top of just a standard human treadmill. Um, and then he put a TV in front of it so that nature shows would come on, just like if you were on your treadmill and you're watching your, your television. And then he also had a food delivery system at the front, which would reinforce bouts of walking um, that uh, could really help condition the animal to the activity. And um, one of our animals, Abe, loved going on this treadmill. And uh, he just looked forward to it every single day, you know, and he would do the, hey, guys, you know, rattling the, the cage if he wasn't getting to his treadmill on time. But he was really reliant on us as his caregivers to get him to that treadmill. 
And I always, it always stuck in my head as, man, I know this animal would just really love to have access to this treadmill at all times, right? Like if he could make those decisions and choices about how to utilize his time throughout the day, man, what, what a cool um, opportunity to provide him some agency. Um, and that particular uh, project really sticks in my mind whenever I'm at Neuralink. Um, and I really try to emphasize creating environments that are alive um, and have opportunities that the animals can make choices about. Um, and, and we don't really have to manipulate those uh, things, those devices, or remove them um, other than to clean or load. Um, but the agency and the independence for the animals to care for themselves, to, to make those decisions for themselves, um, really is returning their power back to them and is very rewarding for caregivers. So um, I just wanted to share that last, last one with you. Um, and yeah. I think it's also great that, um, again, it shows this, you know, just as with the, with the Gibbons mm-hmm. and also for this project, you know, we talk a lot about choice and control or agency and in what ways do we create environments that are like semi-autonomous, right? Where they go and do their things when they want, how they want it and gain access to whatever, the treadmill or a a pellet or a nice view so that they can make those choices because you and I both know, everybody in this field knows we're very busy. We have so many things to do. So how do you then create those opportunities so that they can make those choices when they want to, and they have they don't have to be so dependent, uh, or make you know be less dependent on on the care that we uh, do every day. So yeah, I love that story. Thanks for sharing that one. Yeah, no problem. And if you'll let me go on another tangent here, just to, to Please, expand yes. on that, um, I really enjoyed that podcast uh, that you did with Jill Mellon. Um, in that podcast, you guys talk about the idea of control in positive reinforcement and reinforcement training or conditioning that, that people are doing. Um, and you talk about, uh, I think a story where you asked an animal to do something, they said, no, thanks. And you're like, great, good. Love your choice. Here's your peach. Um, I just love this concept. And so would how, right. How would have, um, given you the, the gold medal and we, uh, apply this to our training with animals at Neuralink. And we unfortunately were able to capture it on television with, um, with our demo with Gertie and in that particular demo and, and most of the demos that you see, the link I gave you, all of that's cut out and they, they go to the part where she is on her, um, station. But, um, what actually happened in that demo Uh, was that she didn't want to come out into the front pen because there was this really exciting straw and, and feed that was happening at the back of some other animals pen. And she was super into that. (laughs) And this was her choice. And we did, we didn't do anything. We just stared and stared at her. (laughs) And everyone around us is like, what are they doing? Why aren't they doing something? why aren't they picking her up? Why aren't they, you know, moving her? And we were like, this is, this was her choice, right? Like we, we gave her the, the cue, we gave her the option 
it doesn't, it didn't even matter to the team that, you know, however bazillion people were watching this live, it, we, it, we had so trained ourselves and conditioned ourselves to believe in and love that the animal is the one who decides if they're going to participate in their training session or not. And Excellent. when she said no on live television, we were like, that's a unfortunate timing, but that was her choice. <laughs> yeah. Well, and I would, I would say, you know, like, obviously, kudos to everybody just going like, yep, that's what she chose. <laughs> and, and But what an, a fortunate, you know, what a, a strong message that sends to, you know, you have a choice. And so um, I ask you a question and then I'm not going to like your answer. That's kind of like that's that's a tough one right so and and I appreciate you you briefly spoke about and with this podcast we of course will also highlight your work and the work that you're doing and voices being heard and um and as you're talking about this I now often you know we we meet people that are not as fortunate as us and they can be on the street or they're you know and um I I often ask them, you know, what is it that you'd like? And then they'll, they'll say whatever it is that they, they want. And, and some of those I wouldn't choose for them. Right. But then it, it is that sort of thing. If, if we're going to be talking about letting people and, and, and animals have their voices heard, then I'll have to listen, even if I don't necessarily like their, the answers that I'm hearing. Right. Right. And and that is something that, uh, yeah, we all have to, like you say, we have to train ourselves to keep listening, to keep looking. And so I'm very glad to you uh, that you shared this story. In what ways can we become better at listening and looking at animals and other people, anybody? Yeah. Yeah. It's just full of Hal's spirit. And, and that's why I share it. And yes. um, I, he would definitely encourage us to keep asking ourselves, how voluntary is it? How voluntary is it? Yeah. Um, so um, just really kind of challenging ourselves to ask that question in, in our training processes. Yes, yes. So, and you talked about his collaborative work with his daughter and I, and you know, the, the drawings and the book. And can you talk to us a little bit about uh, enriching animals' lives and that, that wonderful book? Yes, um, this, this was a cool, um, experience he and I think that that book finally did get published the year before he passed um but it was definitely a labor of love him kind of uh just knowing that he needed to get his recipes out um and into some format that people could see that it, it really wasn't that hard it's really not that hard we can um, you know, build this simple thing here. And um, it, it doesn't need to be a super complicated, you know, fancy technology that's a bazillion dollars. And I think that that's what he wanted to really um, highlight in this book is that it's, it's not just the private sector who should have access to uh, really nice enrichment behavioral spaces. It's um, anybody can build this stuff. And so, he, and here's how you do it. Um, I'm not going to lie. He did try to make me take one of his, 
um, engineering courses. And I'm, I'm pretty sure I failed out in the first two weeks. So it's not for everybody, but everybody's got an engineering friend. So <laughs> exactly, exactly. <laughs> everybody has a friend that can help. Yeah, that's right. That's right. And that again is, uh, goes back to like making sure that we're well connected and that we bring each other into these, um, these exciting projects and work with each other to, to improve the lives of the animals that we work with. Um, I, this, this is like the coolest thing that I have access to at Neuralink is I've never actually been at a facility where I, most of the company actually are engineers. Um, usually it's, it's all scientists. Um, and, and so at this company, it's, it's very few scientists and a ton of engineers. And those engineers are super excited about building, you know, this cool thing for a monkey to make their life better. Um, so that, that is a really nice, uh, resource to have. Yeah. And what an testament also, again, like highlighting how important it is that whether you're, you know, listening in and you're working at a sanctuary, you work at a wildlife center, you work at a children's farm or at a zoo or anywhere else, you know, go and find your nearest engineering university research facility, whatever else. That's uh, right. And make Set up an internship. Yeah. yeah. And get those people into your facility. Maybe you don't even have to pay for it. It could be student projects that they could create things for you. But like, yeah, in the spirit of Dr. Howell, you know, how can you it, have that? That's right. Picture? Get them a copy of Enriching Animal Lives and have them look through some of those recipes and recognize how simple some of these devices really are. The impact is so huge um, and it's reinforcing for everyone. So it, it's a fun thing to do for um, students themselves to get to learn how to participate in these kinds of projects. But my gosh, for the animals as well. So that's a great suggestion to have people contact their local universities and um, yeah, invite interns into your spaces. Um, I, I would really encourage uh, even medical research facilities who, you know, we have a tendency to be a little closed off um, and I think that we are now in a time where it's okay to be more transparent. Um, and we need to be more transparent because we're not gonna get better if we, if we don't. So, um, you know, being okay with inviting students into those spaces to help out is um, something I would really challenge all of us to be doing. Yes, absolutely, absolutely. Can you share with us some stories of you and Hal, we're almost coming to the end of this podcast, celebrating his life. And you've had an amazing, you know, time working together. And do you have some stories of you yeah. and him and animals? Uh, that would be wonderful. You know, actually, my favorite stories of how are maybe not ones at work. They were always, um, you know, spending time with his family. His family was really, really important to him. He's very much a family man. Um, he loved the opera and the symphony. And if you were special enough to go to the opera or symphony with him, when Krista had gotten tired of going, then you knew you were pretty special. <laughs> and they had the fancy seats, you know, the ones right in front with the names engraved on the chairs. So it was just a really beautiful experience. And Hal would go and he would uh, lean back in his seat and close his eyes for the whole show. And he wasn't sleeping. He was just soaking in 
all of the beautiful music. Um, and that was how, that was definitely his meditation space. Um, I, I also loved that whenever Kirsta would make dinner for us, how would always pull out a bottle of port. That was his favorite, you know, and we would pour a glass of port and sip that and play Scrabble or some other word game that he would absolutely kick our butts at. <laughs> and, uh, yeah, he, how was, he was this extremely funny guy. He was super into puns. Um, everything had to be punny. You know, when I introduced him actually at the ABMA conference in 2012, and that was actually the year he passed. Um, he didn't realize I had slipped in some pictures into the front of his slide deck just to be punny. And he didn't realize it until we actually left the conference. Um, but he laughed for a very long time after he saw them. And um, of course, was very embarrassed by me. <laughs> but he was always playing those kinds of jokes on other people. So, um, you know, if you if you came into our enrichment office, he would walk in and pretend like he didn't see you and sit on your lap and just go ahead and go about his business. You know, he was just a funny, uh, larger than life, kind of lots of energy guy. And it's yeah. wonderful that you're talking about, like, it's kind of in passing, but you talk about an enrichment lab, you know, an enrichment, you know, yeah. working together with him actually yeah. create a dedicated space, which we don't have everywhere, you know, and obviously right. an enrichment lab, an enrichment workshop, an enrichment budget, we need that everywhere where there's animals, right? So I, I love that, that you co-created that uh, together and, and having so much fun and, and this, this, you know, the importance of how, you know, our personal lives and our work lives can't really be disconnected. You know, you're always, right? You're playing together, you're doing art together, you're enjoying music and you're co-creating all kinds of opportunities for animals. And whether they are, you know, in the lab or when you're having a meal, um, all these things is about coming together and spending time together. And some of that, uh, you know, comes out for animals. And some of that is because we connect as humans and you, the beginning of the podcast, you talked about talking about one of your favorite humans, and that certainly came through this whole podcast. Oh, good, good. I hope so. It's um, it's really uh, important to embody that spirit here because it was just so special, um, and and it was such an honor to work with him. I know that other people feel this way as well. So. Um, it's an honor to be able to come here and talk to you about that. So thank you for giving me that opportunity. Oh, absolutely. I'm, it's my honor to, you know, have you here. And I'm, I'm sad. I never, you know, like I said, I've, I'm still so inspired by his work. And uh, I'm sad I never met him in person. But uh, it's wonderful to live through other people's experiences. And of course, through his other work written or other so thank you so much for coming on to this podcast to share your experiences about Dr. Hall and also to his wife, Krista, and, you know, the family for sharing stories onto this podcast with us. I really, really appreciate it. So please give my regards and thanks to them as well. Thank you again so much, Autumn, for coming on and talking about uh, the late Dr. Hall Markowitz. Thank you, Sabrina. This was really fun.